You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. Six years ago, a deadly fire at a Romanian nightclub led to protests that eventually toppled the prime minister of the country. In the film Collective, director Alexander Nanau follows a team of journalists as they investigate why survivors of the fire kept dying in hospitals. We watch as the journalists uncover flagrant corruption with the help of courageous whistleblowers. Nanau also gains access to a newly appointed health minister who is trying to reform the system. The resulting documentary could be compared to All the President's Men or Citizen Four because it makes us feel as if the investigation is happening in real time. The democratic stakes are also high as reactionary politicians threaten to prevail in the elections that conclude the movie. Collective strikes a nerve at our present moment, and it's been nominated for two Academy Awards. I spoke with Alex about the film, which he directed, produced, edited, and operated camera on. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. Very pleased to have a special guest for this episode, and that is Alexander Nanau, the director of Collective. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. The film is is something that works on on multiple levels. It's an investigative documentary. It's also quite suspenseful. It's a political documentary in the sense that it does a diagnosis of problems that are common uh, in many parts of the world now. How did you view it? Did you was it something where you just kind of didn't know exactly where it was going to lead uh, and didn't want to frame it in any particular way, or did you kind of go in thinking? you know, this might be a real chance to kind of take the temperature uh, in, in Romania. I think I started to think about doing a film on what is happening in Romania after the fire, because we had all these protests of a young generation in many cities protesting against corrupt and incompetent politicians. And at the same time, you had this healthcare system that was manipulating basically the whole society lying that they can take care of these burnt patients uh, and in the midst of a crisis basically of a national tragedy they just lied to everybody about their competence and and the result was the death of of many of the burn victims in in Romanian hospitals and so i started out by thinking who are these people how is power really working why why are people capable of using their power and instead of working in the service of people, crushing their lives. And we mapped out, you know, how we could tell this story that was going on in the society, so different characters. And because it was impossible, basically, to get access to the power to see how it works, uh, we figured that the best way would be to follow investigative journalists that are investigating the healthcare system and, and all the lies that the politicians, together with doctors, had been saying during the last weeks. Uh, and that's how we approached basically the only journalists that were investigating the power. Did you view yourself as uh, as an observer in, in that sense? I mean, were you trying to keep on the sidelines in that sense and, and not do your own investigative work? I mean, I imagine you must have done some just, you know, to kind of uh, figure out what was going on. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Because we, we when we started the project, basically, we had our own development team, with, which was basically an investigative team that, you know, whose members were, were journalists. And so we investigated ourselves, we met sources from inside the system, we tried to understand things. Uh, 
And I think that that is also something that made the journalists trust us. Uh, they saw how thoroughly we were also digging into, into the system and trying to understand it and that we're taking it very seriously. But once we started to shadow the journalists' work, I would say that, you know, we, we were observers. We, we were basically shadowing their investigation. And what was the first big break in, in the story that they gave you access to? I would say the, what the whistleblower brought in uh, and, you know, the, the proof they, they got that the burn patients did not die of their burn injuries, but because they were infected with, uh, with very lethal hospital infections. That was the first thing. And then what, what followed was the lead towards a company that was producing and diluting disinfectants that they were selling to uh, almost all state hospitals. The amazing thing watching the movie is that you know, it just keeps getting worse. You know, I mean, it's really a true portrait of corruption in the sense that it's pervasive. At any point during this, did you feel that, you know, the situation is, is hopeless or were your spirits raised by the fact that you were, you know, at least bringing transparency to this situation? I think that I thought that is it is rotten. And then I thought that the lack of humanity is at a level that I could not really understand and but i i never thought that it is hopeless because i saw and met enough people also from inside the system that were aware of what is going wrong and were aware that they want to be part of fixing these problems and also the fact that the people in the end believed the the press investigation although the the politicians tried to play down and to you know the normal things like call the journalist fake uh, and call the, the investigation just fake news. But still seeing that that so many people believed in investigation and took the part the, the side of the journalists and took even the streets to you know to to make it very clear that they believed the investigations and that the system is is rotten and corrupt, that that gave me hope. I think it's you know it's a young democracy. And things are, are still um, information somehow, you know. It's, it's a fight between generations, I would say here. Yeah, and I think that's a great part of the structure of the film that, you know, it's not just a, a, a detective story. You also weave in the, the emotional story of survivors, I mean, particularly following one survivor. Was that a structure that you chose in the editing process? You know, how did, how did you arrive at that mix of those two threads in the story? I mean, first of all, we started basically from understanding that this is the story of, of the victims and the survivors. But I would say that, you know, although there were points where they, the, the, their roads crossed between journalists and, and survivors, it was not very clear yet how one would construct it in the editing room so that the viewer gets the same feeling of unity that, that we had in reality. Like, you know, these things were linked. I mean, the journalists were investigating basically in the service of the, of the victims and the survivors. And I think it was in the editing room that we found the right balance 
and also the right form in which you as a viewer experience you know, these two different threads as organically a unity. A big part of the film also is just the camera work, which I, I kind of want to single out because weirdly, it's not always an, an aspect of documentaries that people, I think, appreciate enough because people talk about documentaries just in terms of their subject matter usually. But what's really special for me about Collective is that you're operating your own camera. And that means you're putting yourself in situations where it can much or most of the time just be you. How did that allow you uh, special access? I, I mean, I guess being in the room with the young health minister is one example where being your own camera operator really meant you could shoot things that maybe you wouldn't have been able to shoot as, as easily or as openly. Yeah, exactly. I think that, I mean, it gives you a, it gives you an advantage that you become basically merged with your, with your camera and people accept you as that. You know, you are the person with the camera, but it's just one thing. So they know whenever you're in the room, uh, you won't be there without the camera. And also that helps you, you know, it makes it possible also in very intimate situations or in situations where people really need to feel a certain intimacy or uh, you don't want them to worry about too many people being uh, witness to things, you know, although the camera is witness, but it's something that, that, you know, real life people do not always, you know, they get so used to it that they don't see it as, okay, good. I'm, I mean, this will anyway be to see for everybody, but it allows you just to, to get a, a degree of intimacy that you would not get if you would just, you know, be a director and, standing next to a, to a camera person and then you have to see if you see the same way as the camera person, if, if the camera person sees what you think should be captured now. Uh, it makes it more organically. It makes it basically more like the work of a, of a street photographer. A street photographer who who you know happens to be in in the you know the minister's conference room watching decisions of, of power. I, I couldn't believe sometimes what you were capturing, these very candid conversations and kind of off-the-cuff remarks. The health minister who uh, who replaces the older uh, corrupt health minister, he is a figure that you were probably familiar with just from Romanian politics and human rights scene. Uh, I was familiar with him because, I mean, he was not living in Romania before. Uh, he, he was living in Austria where he was working in a bank and he was known for being a patients activist. And he built something like a network of private people that were bringing cancer medicine into Romania that was missing for Romanian patients. So basically they paid for it and they, they smuggled it basically into the country uh, from Western pharmacies. Something like the the uh, Dollars uh, Buyers Club was it called in the states? Oh right, uh huh. So that's why I heard I had heard about him, but I didn't know him. And he that I mean the advantage was that he was not part of any political system, or he was not part of the of the healthcare system, and that's what basically allowed him to give me access because he was not. You know, nobody could do any pressure on him if he lets me, if he, if he is transparent. And that's basically the advantage of not being part of the power structure, because inside a power structure, that's one thing that I learned now, is that, you know, in any political party or in a system like the healthcare system, wherever you are in the world, 
basically once the people are inside of it there's a code of conduct that you don't give you are not transparent you don't give access because people might find something against one of the members and so it's an unspoken rule that no member is allowed to give access uh, and as in any politics basically i think any member of a political party is allowed to be a a, a member if there's enough that can be held against him so that people can control him. It's almost as if there's something about the system where, I mean, power protects itself. Even if you go in with one intention, the system seems to preserve itself in some way. Yeah. And it does, it does that by controlling its members, basically. So everybody who is allowed to have a career is in a way controllable by some vulnerability that he or she has. What sort of pressures did you feel? I mean, in, in any way, did you feel at some point that you had to back off or stop? Or you also encounter some kind of <laughs> unsavory characters along the way. Did, did you ever feel any pressure about having to stop your role in, in showing the truth about things? No, no. And I wouldn't have done that in no, in no way. Because... It felt while we were making the film and, and shadowing this uh, work of the journalists, of the whistleblowers, and also of the minister, you know, it, you, you can, seeing how much, with how much courage they do it and basically how much they risk for it, most of all the whistleblowers, because the, the, the journalists have a paper behind them, you know, they are maybe more, more safe. But the whistleblowers are private persons that really risk everything, their their professional life, everything. So, you know, once you film this kind of people, you're you you would not back out. You know, it's just uh, it, it's a thing of being professional and and standing up to to somehow to also the moral obligation you have once you start doing a film about courage, basically. Uh, but for sure, we were surveilled. I knew that my, my, my phone was tapped by the Secret Service. We had a source that in, inside the Secret Service that uh, flagged that to me. And I knew that, for example, after I started shooting in a ministry, different members of the team of the minister were, you know, summoned to have a coffee with <laughs> agents to see, to, to, to get more information on me. But that said, I mean, we are a professional production and we just took care that nobody can harm the project, which means every day we would uh, save our footage on multiple sources, hide it in, in multiple places and also fly it out of the country and protect it with the company outside the country. So it's just, you know, normal procedure for documentary producing while you film something on, on a state, let's say. But that said, there was also another thing that, made me feel basically secure. Nobody could understand what I'm doing. Nobody could understand that I'm next to the most feared journalist at that time, filming all these inside things and not releasing anything for months. So at a certain point, whoever would survey me would, would have to think that I'm a bit cuckoo, you know, like, what is he doing? And so I think nobody could imagine that you know, what I was basically saying all the time, we we're going to shoot for a year or more, we're going to edit for a year or more. So we'll have a film in maybe three years from the moment on we started to film. 
Right. You you sort of you didn't show your cards yet, and so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for for them, it seemed like old news. The the when I would come out with the film, it would seem like old news. And even the journalists at a certain point said, like, "Listen, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, when are you going to release this film?" And I would say, like, it will take another year or one and a half years. And they would say, like, yeah, but nobody will be interested anymore at that time. You know. It will all be old news because for journalists that are working with news, it's very hard to, to imagine, you know, why, you know, why you wait for such a long time. But I think filmmaking is, is a different thing. And a film has to, you know, to shape its story around the universal elements of it and has to stay valid for the next 5, 10, 15 or more years if it's well done. It's interesting that they think that it's somehow going to be old news because from the ending as an American viewer, the, the ending is, is very hard watching these information texts that come on the screen and telling us that the elections went the other way. How did you decide to end on, on that note? And, and then also, I wonder if you can tell us where Romania is, is today in, in terms of these kind of issues. I mean, for me, the story ends there where I felt that enough, was, enough questions were basically raised so that, you know, it felt like, okay, now we can release the viewer into his own life and, you know, let him ask himself the same questions regarding to his life and his society and his own life attitude without, within his society. And that said, I mean, what, what was important to me was also to understand that a society develops by another, by another speed than an individual. Right, we tend to understand things, to know what might be better, to 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 think that we see the right direction in which things can go and how we can influence them or how we can contribute. But a society needs more time, and you know it goes very fast to lose the uh, the trust of a society in things. Right, like journalists, for example. Good journalists might have great investigations, but one mistake, one thing that is wrong can destroy the trust in no time. Uh, and it's the same with the society and politics. You know, you have a society that basically doesn't trust politics and it takes a longer time for them to want to trust politics, to want to understand how it really works. And you've seen it also in the States. You know, it, it took a time, you know, it, it took a term of four years of uh, an administration that systematically try to destroy democratic institutions. But people started to understand that they have to get involved if they don't want to see their state crushing just in front of them and, you know, or their state crushing them. And that's also what happened in Romania. People started to vote differently. Uh, New parties came into play, reformatory parties of young people that basically came out of private businesses and said, like, the only way to change politics from this populistic, incompetent and corrupt politicians is to get involved. We cannot just sit there and hope that every four years we vote uh, between two bad parties and something will get better. So let's, you know, we have to get into politics. And also Vlad Voiculescu, the minister you see that we're following in the film, became part of these parties. And last year they won enough votes to take over mayories and now we have a lot of cities uh, governed by by young mayors that are fighting corruption and are you know are fighting hard for transparency. 
uh, even the the nice uh, woman mayor you see, the Bucharest mayor, is out of office. She was voted out. And Vlad Voiculescu is since last Christmas, so basically since, what, three months, uh, he is back in the Minister, Minister of Health. Wow. <laughs> that, I mean, that just that shows that anytime you think things are, are, are down, the direction can change. You just really have to kind of persist, I guess. Yeah, but which does not mean... Uh, it is not still an open fight because the it's still a system that is so infiltrated by this uh, corruption and by these people that control it through you know public servants and and so forth that it's it's an open fight it's something that will not end soon and the big menace now is that the expectations we have in these new people let's say in these people that you know promise change uh, are very high, and if they don't meet them, the backlash can be very harsh. In the you know, over four years when we have again elections, right? I want to step back and just ask a couple uh, last questions. Uh, one is just looking at the history of movies and documentary tradition. I, you know, I'm curious where you found your allies, you know, and inspirations as an established documentary filmmaker. Which filmmakers have been inspirations, or which fiction films as well? Oh, that I mean, that's, you know, I get inspiration from fiction and documentary films and from theater. So, you know, for sure, my, you know, my, let's say, film heroes or the directors that, that made films the way I would wish I could make films are, uh, you know, people like uh, John Ford, uh, Max Ophüls, for sure, the, the neorealists in, in Italy, from you know Rossellini but I think a big influence on me when I studied film in film school were the the direct cinema pioneers I think that was an encounter that defined my need to go into observational uh, documentary filmmaking so it was for sure like the, the films of Robert Drew uh, but also or maybe most of all the Maisel brothers and uh, films like Salesman where I discovered that, you know, the poetry and the, the power of uh, real-life characters can match totally that of, of fiction drama. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Salesman, the emotional range of Salesman, really, that kind of echoes with Collective for me, because, I mean, watching Collective, you really, I mean, I really went the whole range of, of, <laughs> of emotions as I watched the kind of ups and downs of, of, of things mm-hmm. that also felt part of it. Did I hear you right? You said theater was also... I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I worked in... You know, I, I while I was studying, I also worked in theater and toured around Europe with a great uh, theater group that was working in, in Germany on the highest level with, you know, great actors and everything. And I think that a lot of the things I apply in my documentary filmmaking, I learned in theater because theater offers you time to connect with people, time to understand how people are, basically. You know, you have time to watch actors and to connect to them and understand how you... You understand, basically, the directing has nothing to do with exterior methods. It all has to do with the way you communicate with people and with the way you project things and people project back. and, And I think that is a lot of, you know 
I think that informs a lot the way also I interact and build up the relationships with the real life characters that I, I decide to follow for many months. Well, I just wanted to end by asking you about your own background. You're based in Germany. No, I'm right now I'm again based in Bucharest in Romania, but I, you know, I was born in Romania. My mother was part of the German minority that lives in Romania or lived in Romania since over a thousand years with no connection to Germany, basically, but preserving the uh, the culture and the language and everything. Uh, and so basically I belong to more ethnicities and then we moved to Germany when I was 10. So I grew up basically and got all my artistic education, I would say, in, in, in Germany. But in a, in a very mixed group of people from all over the world, from all different ethnicities. And then I rediscovered Romania when it joined the European Union in 2007. And I started to come over to shoot here and, and made prior to collective two documentaries here. Uh, and then I decided by end of 2015, I think, I decided to settle in, in Romania. And, and you mentioned your past work. I've only seen one other feature, and I just want to recommend it for listeners. Toto and his sisters. It should be on any, any platform in the U.S. Yeah. No, that's also just an intimate uh, and, and, and revealing um, documentary. Really great. Well, thank you, Alex, so much for talking about the film. Thank you, Nicolas. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.